The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Our next speaker is Brian Wilcox. Brian is the manager of space robotics technology at JPL. For 20 years, he was the supervisor of the robotic vehicles group, developing much of the technology for the rovers that have explored Mars since 1997. He has a bachelor's degree in physics and mathematics and a master's degree in electrical engineering. Please welcome Brian Wilcox. Thank you, John. Um, I guess the remote mic is working. So uh, I want to talk to you today about capturing uh, non-cooperative objects. And um, this uh, leads you to you know, kind of an obvious list of uh, topics, um, which includes uh, first just you know, kind of looking at the literature of uh, what sorts of things have been done. Um, the, uh, the capture of uh, non-cooperative objects has received actually quite a bit of attention in the last uh, decade or so, and most especially in the last few years, because of the subject of orbital debris. Uh, many of you are aware that a, uh, uh, a Soviet-era uh, satellite, uh, upper stage, I guess, uh, hit, or no, I believe a satellite, hit a, an Iridium satellite, uh, causing quite a bit of orbital debris, uh, and also a uh, Chinese anti-satellite weapon test also generated quite a bit of orbital debris. Both of those uh, you know, bumped up in, a, in quantum events, you know, significantly the amount of orbital debris. And this has caused the fact, especially the, um, the, the impact, the unanticipated impact of two satellites. Many people had thought that space is so big that really it was going to be a long time before two real satellites impacted each other. And, and this occurred much earlier than many people had predicted. Um, and yet, um, you know, it is now forecast. The uh, DARPA did this catcher's mitt study uh, that was published last year, um, and they concluded that there will be a, a substantial rise in orbital debris because of collisions. And so this has generated uh, quite a bit of interest. And there was a DARPA had an announcement of interest, uh, although no no contracts uh, yet, and perhaps uh, for the near future. Um, to look at how to do this. So people have started uh, studying this. And in the catcher's mitt report, you know, they, uh, they talk about advanced rendezvous and proximity operations. You know, they believe that uh, articulated arms, for example, are able to do this. Um, but you know, everybody has said, you know, we think we know how to do this, but it's never really been proven. And there was a European study that you'll find out on the web that basically says, you know, the same thing. Autonomy is assumed for the time scales of these operations, where typically the, the capture maneuver happens in a relatively few seconds. It's much shorter than the speed of light round trip back to Earth. And so uh, really, I mean, even in the Earth-Moon system, because of uh, the asynchronous relay satellite, you know, delays and so on, uh, it's longer than the, the speed of light round trip. And certainly for a near-Earth object, uh, it would be significantly more than the uh, round-trip light time. So you need some kind of autonomy that figures this out. You know, you, you get it set up, and then you do the capture event, but the capture event has to be uh, autonomous. Um, Don uh, alluded to this, uh, that, that the question of tumbling is a, is a significant issue. Uh, you know, and here's a reference if you want to go out on the web and find it. Uh, Alan Harris was at JPL at the time, uh, put a note in Icarus uh, where he you know, uh, basically, he was talking about Tutatis, uh, which was the light curve indicated that it was not in a simple spinning 
you know, it did not have the, the classic repetitive light curve, uh, and that suggested to people that it was tumbling, and so he, he did a calculation based on previous literature that led him to believe that the time of relaxation to the principal axis was like 10 of the 12 years, uh, and so it clearly could be uh, a tumbling object. And, uh, and under these assumptions, because as, as Don mentioned, you know, it's inverse with, with radius squared and, and inverse with angular velocity cubed, or that is proportional to the period cubed, um, you, uh, you have something where small, you know, the, the faster it spins, the more rapidly it damps to the principal axis because it has more cycles of excitation, you know, tidal or whatever that, that dissipate energy. And the slower it spins, you have few cycles of dissipation of that energy and therefore it takes a long time. Um, so if it's spinning, you know, something like one meter radius, two meter diameter, um, in something like 10, you know, it, it with spin periods as low as 10 minutes, uh, the damping time constant is comparable to the age of the solar system. Uh, also in this same reference, they talk about the, you know, the collisional lifetimes, and as uh, uh, John Lewis pointed out this morning, you know, the, or, or actually I guess, well, Don just showed it, the, the, uh, the curve of uh, population density of objects is slightly steeper than minus two on a log-log plot, and that means that, that the majority of the cross-section is in the small objects, and the majority of the mass is in the large objects, because the slope is between two and three, so cross-section goes with square and mass goes with cube. So, so the small objects have an overwhelming uh, fraction of the cross-section, and that means that they're more likely to be hit. And it turns out that the, you know, the, the, the bigger objects, the kind that we're concerned with in planetary defense, uh, tend to have a collisional lifetime comparable to the age of the solar system, but the small objects have collisional lifetimes that are much less than the life of the solar system. And so uh, you would expect them to be, uh, to, you know, to very possibly be tumbling. Now, Don presented data that showed that only a, a few of these small ones uh, are tumbling. He uh, presented a different version of this chart that, that showed, you know, tumbling and not. Um, but uh, basically, this same chart, you know, leads you to believe that rubble pile, you know, there's something about that magic uh, condition where the equatorial um, centripetal acceleration, or the centrifugal force, if you will, is greater than the gravity force. That's the rubble pile limit, and that's at about two hours-ish rotation period. Um, and the fact that none get above that is what has suggested to many people for the last decade or more that, that these objects probably are rubble piles, because if you saw the, if the population density just, you know, was, you know, equally likely to be above and below the line, that leads you not to the rubble pile hypothesis, but the fact that they're, they're all, uh, you know, the presumption is that if they were, had a collision that put them above it, they break up, and they either break up into a, into a, just one second, um, you know, into a pair of objects that co-orbit or, or objects that, that escape from each other. Yes, Paul. Yes, I tried to use the word suggests, and, 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 
Yes, of course, and, and that's, you know, I, you know, one has to be very careful about uh, using the word proof, and that's why I use the word suggest. Um, but in any event, this part of the distribution, which is really the more greater interest to this group, uh, clearly does not suggest that the rubble pile limit has played a, you know, a major factor in the creation of this uh, population. And so, uh, again, the, you know, the same uh, comment that, that Don just made, which is that these uh, are very possibly monolithic. Now, that, that they don't have regolith, let me just say they don't have regolith, if they're, if they're principal axis spinners, they won't have a regolith on their equator. That is, they won't have loose material because the centrifugal force is greater than gravity. But at the poles, they could still have um, regolith. And, um, and of course, if they're tumbling, uh, depending on how closely aligned the, principal, you know, the angular momentum vector is to the principal axis, um, you know, that will determine somewhat of, of whether they have regions of regolith. Um, now, uh, back in the 80s, we did uh, uh, research at JPL. This is uh, from what's called the Telerobot Testbed. Basically, we had a spinning satellite which was on a free gimbal. It was a, had a counterweight, so it could actually move in six degrees of freedom over a, a certain work volume. We had cameras that looked at it. We had a model of the object. We tracked it. We had a real-time edge detector, which at that time was sort of the state-of-the-art machine vision. Uh, we could track it. You see the flashing dots there indicate that the model is, in fact, being correctly and uh, continuously uh, tracked on the, the object in the camera images. And then we had two arms. This object, this uh, satellite, weighed about 400 pounds. These arms are rated at five pounds. And we had these Velcro attachment pads, and we were able then to match velocity with the surface and uh, bring this thing to stop you know, within uh, you know, a relatively short distance, consistent with the, the five pound limit on the uh, uh, on the robot arms and the you know 400 plus pound uh, satellite mass. The um, uh, one thing I might mention is that we had force torque sensors. You saw the gold bands on each of the arms. Uh, at the instant of capture, you want to switch from from position control to force control so that you manage the forces, uh, and that's especially true with the uncertainty in the mass and therefore the uncertainty in the angular momentum and so on. Um, so um, you, you, uh, you, know, you need to manage the forces. And, uh, and this basically this demonstrated the key ingredients that you need to track it ahead of time, you need to synchronize your motion, and then you need to attach to it with uh, some combination of active and passive compliance so that you don't break things. Um, so uh, you can do a little you know, kind of high school physics on this situation. And uh, in the yellow cells, you put the assumptions, like the, uh, you know, the nominal density. Uh, I used a 10-minute uh, spin period, uh, a uh, uh, you know, radius of, of 2 meters, which would be a 4-meter object, 4-meter diameter. Um, I used a SEP, a beam power. I was using 55% efficiency on a 30 kilowatt, which is uh, the same as the Dawn efficiency. I think right now they're running around 55. The John Brophy mentioned earlier that 65% you know, can be achieved, but uh, 55 is not a bad number, 3,000 seconds. And you end up with, uh, you, know, you, you generate a thrust of one Newton, which is very consistent, I think, with what John showed. Uh, this morning, and if you apply that at the radius, you know you have to thrust for 600 seconds 
that is 10 minutes, which is one spin period. Um, so you can stop this thing with one newton of force applied tangentially at the equator uh, for one you know, nominal spin period. Uh, this is not surprising. You know, uh, when you think back, the equatorial speed of these objects is centimeters per second. You're going to bring them back to Earth. That's going to take delta Vs of approaching a kilometer a second, maybe even more. And, and so we shouldn't expect that the angular momentum, which is kind of the mass times the, the equatorial velocity, you know, is, is certainly related to that. That is, the, the linear momentum would be its mass at the equatorial velocity. That is very small compared to the thing we're going to try to ultimately accomplish, which is to bring it back to Earth. And so we should not be surprised that the propulsion system that's capable of bringing it back to Earth can stop the rotation of one of these objects in a very short period of time. Um, the, uh, the, the, the issue, of course, is you've got to grab onto it, and how, how do you do that? Um, now, before you can grab onto it, you, know, you probably want to model it. Now, there are... Um, um, you know, there, there were, uh, I should have mentioned in the, the DARPA study, that they gave a list of, of their favorite mechanisms. And some of them involved inflatables and throwing a net over it and so on. And some of those don't require modeling. But uh, most people who have considered this problem do assume that prior to contact, you do want to have a 3D model. And 3D models are kind of a dime a dozen these days. I mean, you can go on the web and you can get, uh, you know, a wide variety of places, you can send them, you know, multiple images and they'll send you back a CAD model um, and for free. And, uh, and we've used this to advantage in some of our work. Uh, also, you know, there are, there are plenty good real-time stereo systems, not the least of which is the one that's operating on the Mars Exploration Rovers right now. Uh, so uh, many groups have stereo vision systems and, of course, then there's all manner of, of LIDAR. You might want to carry a LIDAR. Uh, LIDARs have you know, certain advantages for rendezvous as well. I mean, you, you certainly need uh, both range and range rate, uh, and uh, LIDARs and radars and so on give you the range rate uh, information that is very helpful in, in rendezvous. Um, so getting a, a reasonable three-dimensional model of these objects, which might have been considered a trick, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, should not be difficult uh, to achieve. And since you're going to rendezvous with this thing and then do the capture event probably days or weeks later, the speed of light round trip really isn't an issue. You can send data back to Earth. You can crunch it on Earth. Uh, you can, um, uh, you know, plan your capture event uh, quite um, extensively on Earth and then uplink the the plan. Um, what you do need, of course, is the ability to react to events, and most of those events relate to the forces once you start imparting forces to the object. And, and so closing, as with all space robotics, closing the, spa the force loop locally to the spacecraft is usually crucial. Uh, and and as, while you're in you know, free space motion, you can do everything in a pre-planned trajectory. And as soon as you start, you know, making contact, it's, uh, you know, like the old saying, uh, battle plan never survives contact with the enemy, and, and the same is true with, with forces. So as soon as you start generating forces, now you have to do everything in real time, 
adapting in real time because the forces will not be generally what you expect if for no other reason than the mass is not what you expect. Uh, you do want to generate you know, illumination and albedo models and so on, but again, those can all be pre-computed uh, on Earth. Uh, once you start generating forces, um, you have to uh, ask yourself, you know, what kind of forces uh, are there? And this is a, uh, a chart out of a study that was done for the uh, Rosetta uh, mission, and, um, which is now in flight, of course, to a, to a comet. Um, and, uh, and there are lots of different forces that can occur. Now, in a comet, you have a somewhat more complex situation because you have evolved gas and so on, and perhaps quite a bit of dust in the area. Uh, but um, still, many of these effects are going to uh, uh, impact your vehicle, and many of them are larger than the gravitational force. So uh, if you look at the magnitude of these forces, um, you know, a, an object, in this case, they, they said the weight of the lander, this was the lander for the Rosetta uh, orbiter uh, that went with the Rosetta orbiter down to the surface. Um, you know, it's in this range of forces, you know, 10 to the minus 2 newtons, and yet you have other, other area, uh, you know, you basically you want to anchor with a, you know, a num many times, you know, an order of magnitude or perhaps more than that. Um, uh, again, you need in kind of the 1 to 10 newton range because you want to tug on it with a newton in a tangential direction to stop the spin in a reasonable amount of time. Um, the, uh, the, the gas drag, if, if there is evolved gas from the object, which I suppose we're not really expecting, but, um, but you know, depending on the, the temperature of the uh, interior, you, know, you could generate a gas uh, effluent that generates you know, s s comparable forces not only to the gravity, but even to an anchor that's an order of magnitude or more greater uh, than the uh, uh, you know, than the gravity. Um, and then you have other forces, electrostatic and other, that you have to, you have to consider. Now, you could um, uh, do some of, you know, you, you can imagine ways of tugging on this. Uh, the gravity tractor uh, is an idea that has been out there a while. Uh, unfortunately, for small objects, there's not, just not enough gravity to get the kind of force that you want. Uh, you, you want really like a Newton, and you're not going to get a Newton you know, out of gravity. You could get it out of an electrostatic approach, but that would be probably uh, far more complex and, and difficult to validate than, than just a physical anchor. Um, so uh, depending on what kind of object it is, if it's, a, uh, if it's a, a monolithic piece of stone, of rock, um, one way to do it would be with a a normal rotary percussive drill. And we did some testing of a, of a commercial rotary percussive uh, drill of the type that you'd buy at your favorite big box hardware store. And, um, and so it turns out that with very low axial force, you know, we, we varied the axial force. The, the objective was to find out whether this thing would penetrate with very reduced axial force. Um, in this case, it was in a study in preparation for the Mars Science Laboratory mission that's going to launch next month, uh, in a month or so. Um, and, uh, and on the end of an arm, you don't want to have to push too hard. 
and people had been thinking that you needed to push with several hundred newtons in order to drill. And if you've ever tried to drill a hole in a concrete floor with anything but a rotary percussive drill, you know that it, you have to push very hard and you still don't make much progress, even with you know, tungsten carbide bits and so on. But if you have that percussion, it goes through like butter. If you've ever used one, you know. Uh, and, and the only thing that you really have to do, what you have to accomplish, is you have to get the bit back in contact with the rock before the next hammer blow. Because as long as the, uh, you know, what's, what matters is that you just have contact and then the hammer hits the back of the bit and the shock wave propagates through the bit and into the rock and breaks up the rock and, and, and you make good progress. And so as we kind of expected, the rate of penetration was essentially independent of weight on bit uh, down to 29 newtons, and in fact, we believe down to about 10 newtons. Or, you know, the theory says that you should be able to get back in contact with about 10 newtons of axial force. You can get the bit back in contact with the rock uh, before the next blow. And of course, if you don't, and you still want to reduce your weight on bit further, you can just reduce the time between impacts. And so the, you, you don't need to have 30 blows per second, uh, per minute. Um, you know, you can have, um, uh, you know, a very few blows, and all you need is just enough force to get the, the bit back in contact uh, with, the, uh, with the surface. And, uh, and so uh, this, uh, you know, effect suggests that with the normal attitude control system of a spacecraft and using something like a kilogram of reaction mass in your, in your RCS system, you can hold your, um, your vehicle on the, onto the surface long enough to drill a pilot hole. And once you have a pilot hole, which is perhaps a centimeter in diameter and several centimeters deep, if it's a monolithic basalt type rock, you could, um, you know, you could put in an expansion anchor um, and, and hold yourself down, and now you can pull real, real hard. I mean, a, you know, a, a normal one-ton anchor that goes into a concrete floor is only about that big, and you can pull a ton on it. So, um, so then you can provide all your own reaction force, and you can drill deeper holes. Um, and the equatorial velocity of this object is not so high that the normal reaction control system of a spacecraft would not be easily able to, to uh, match velocities and, and uh, synchronize its motion with the surface and then hold itself down on the surface with the 10 newtons of force long enough to get the pilot hole uh, started. And all that would take of order a kilo or two of, of total reaction mass. So uh, well within sort of the nominal design. I mean, you'd certainly want to put it in your, in your mass budgets, but um, it not, would not strain the normal allocation of, of RCS uh, fluids and things like that. Um, before I go on to non-rock type systems, let me just mention that Aaron Parnas, who's in the audience, has, a, has, has done a lot of research lately, uh, which I don't talk about in this, but it, it, uh, he, he has a lot of little claws, and he's gone down, uh, did his PhD thesis on, on Gecko's feet type stuff, and if you have a monolithic, dust-free uh, system, uh, you can grab with these little microscopic hooks 
uh, grab a hold directly, and I think that is a tremendous possibility. Uh, you have a movie that I wish I'd asked you for, which where you, he just drops his, his, his micro hook array onto, the, onto a rock and lifts, I, it must be a 50 pound rock or something like that, right Aaron? Uh, so anyway, maybe uh, you know, later you can show people that movie or something if you've got it with you. Because uh, I, I realize now that I should have I asked you for that. Um, now let's go to the case where there's regolith. Uh, let me just also mention there's the, there's the nickel iron case, and if you have to anchor to a nickel iron asteroid, an electromagnet is the right way to go. You know, electromagnets are really simple, and they create tremendous force. If you've ever you know, looked at them lifting up junk in, an, in a scrapyard with an electromagnet, you know, for a very small amount of power, you can generate tremendous force on nickel iron. Um, so. Yes, well, yes, you could, although it, it turns out that with milliwatts, and a, you know, with a, a coil that big and a few milliwatts, you can, you can uh, generate the one to 10 newtons easily, and so it, you know, it may or may not be simpler than the switchable magnet, but. Well, yes, now if it's, well, if it's, if it's spinning faster than the, the you know, rubble pile limit, uh, then you are kind of, already, um, it's, it's already proven, so to speak, that it's, that it's a monolith. Now, it doesn't necessarily prove that it's really competent rock, but on the other hand, one Newton is not very much, you know, is, is not very much. Um, well, okay, uh, uh, and maybe Don or some of the other experts in asteroids can, can respond to that, but, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't expect one of these fast spinners to have the consistency of flour. I'd, I'd expect it to be more like a, a rock, and it might have a crack in it, and if you really pulled hard, you could open that crack up. But since I'm on the yellow light, I want to keep, keep going. Um, Basically, in regolith, you have an issue of, uh, we're, we're very uncertain as to the, the regolith properties on an asteroid, because if you just take, if you take uh, dust grains and let them settle in microgravity, you, know, you can get as low as a tenth of, you know, uh, you know, tens of pascals of cohesion. Uh, or if, you know, on the moon, you frequently see you know, 80, uh, you, you see, uh, you know, of order one kilopascal. So you have more than an order of magnitude, almost two orders of magnitude of range of uncertainty in the cohesion. Um, and that really affects your design of anything for, for uh, you know, anchoring. So you have the inflatable uh, concepts. And since I'm on the yellow button, you, have, you can certainly put a tether around the whole thing. When it's only a few meters in diameter, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, the... Uh, you know, the windless effect that is the, uh, the e to the theta, mu, mu theta, uh, increase in tension as you wrap around a, uh, a cylinder, uh, very rapidly gets you to the point where even the smallest force, if you can get a couple of wraps around it, you've got it tight. You don't even need to anchor the end. Just the molecular forces will anchor the end strong enough. Um, so that's certainly one approach. Um, the helical anchor, which is what we've worked with, where in the literature you'll see that they, they no, don't have continuous flutes all the way down, they just have very isolated flutes. It turns out you get the same pullout force as you would with a continuous helical flute, but you get something like one-tenth as much friction. And so you're able to um, 
anchor into this uh, with relatively low uh, reaction forces and moments um, without, um, you know, without reducing the pullout force. And the pullout force is basically the cohesion times the area of the cone that you'd pull out. You know, if that whole thing started to go, you'd pull a cone, at the very least a cylinder, but probably a cone of the soil, and the surface area of that soil times the cohesion is, is, is the pullout force. And that's why knowing the, the cohesion is very important, and we have no idea really what the cohesion is. The real, the real question is, is the moon, is the 1,6 g on the moon, somehow does it bias the compaction under micrometeorite bombardment to, to increase the, the cohesion? Or do these particles really just, you know, if they float around in microgravity and then they're bombarded by micrometeorites over the same period of time and over the same environmental conditions roughly as the moon, hard vacuum, 1AU and so on, is that 1,6G critical in biasing the compaction process? We don't know. Intuition suggests it's not that you would expect the regolith on asteroids to be not that different from regolith on the moon because you would not expect the 1,6G the to have play any real role in the compaction process. That's my intuition. Other people could differ. Um, so uh, then there's a harpoon anchor, which uh, uh, if it's a monolith, of course, uh, and it, for these small objects, you, you risk with a harpoon, you, you risk breaking it up. And so uh, I tend to not favor the harpoon approach, although some people uh, certainly do. Uh, we did, we built uh, one of these uh, helical anchors and we built a pair of counter-rotating helical anchors. Uh, and this is on our vehicle Athlete, which has leg wheels on legs, which is why you see a wheel spinning, which powers the whole thing. We have a tool adapter driven by the wheel motor. And so we grab our tool and it counter-rotates the, the helical auger uh, into the regolith. Now this is, this is uh, uh, crushed basalt, basically. Um, but it is in 1G, and so, of course, it's, uh, since it's been sitting in this bin for six months and, uh, you know, it's, it's compacted somewhat, so the, whether it really has uh, mechanical properties similar to the properties of regolith on an asteroid is uh, very difficult to, uh, to say. Um, so, in conclusion, uh, you know, these small neas may be fast spinners of solid rock, uh, or slower spinning with regolith, uh, or they could have regolith on the, on the pole axis but not on the equator, and maybe you'd start by anchoring on the pole, because that's uh, you know, obviously much easier to match velocities with and so on. Um, spin of these near-Earth objects, near-Earth asteroids, is easily zeroed if something you can get on the order of one Newton force for on the order of 10 minutes, uh, you know, if you can find a place to grab it that will take one Newton of force. Uh, anchoring to nickel iron would be done with some kind of magnetic system. Anchoring to rock would be with either rotary percussive bootstrapping or maybe these, uh, these hook devices that Aaron has been uh, working on. Um, and then uh, the uh, you know, anchoring in regolith might be with the counter-rotating augers. Uh, and then there's you know, a host of other possibilities that deserve further study. In particular, nets, you know, just throwing a net around it and letting it get tangled up in the net you know, is not a bad idea. And uh, lasso, which is basically a single cable that you wrap around it, uh, or the various inflatable concepts, and John presented uh, uh, basically, you know, you put it in a box that has a bag, and then you pull the bag, you know, you cinch the bag up, and so on, and then, and then deal with the angular momentum of the box, 
after the, the thing is captured inside the box. Um, and I think that's it. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.